I'm going to read to you something that I, to my understanding, is a, is a true story. <clears throat> and I, I, honestly, I debated about, about reading it. But I felt like I, uh, especially in light of today's message and the passage that we are going to be looking at, I felt like I, uh, I couldn't not read it. A young woman who had been brought up in a Christian home chose to take the way of the world against the wishes of her godly mother, she insisted on keeping company with a wild crowd who lived only for the passing moment. Time and time again, this young woman was pleaded with to turn from her ways and to turn to Christ. But she consistently refused. Finally, she was taken with a very serious illness. All that medical science could do was done for her. And it soon became evident that her recovery was hopeless. And death was staring her in the face. But despite her grave condition, she still refused to turn to God. One night, she awoke suddenly out of a sound sleep with a frightened look on her face. And she said in panic, Mother, what is Ezekiel 7, 8, and 9? Her mother replied, What do you mean? She explained that she had had a very vivid dream and thought there was a presence in the room who said to her, read Ezekiel 7, 8, and 9. Not recalling the passage, the mother reached for a Bible. As she opened it, her heart sank as she read the words. The words she then shared to her dying daughter. I am about to pour out my wrath on you and send my anger against you. I will judge you according to your conduct and repay you for all your detestable practices. I will not look on you with pity. I will not spare you. 
I will repay you for your conduct and for the detestable practices among you. The daughter with a a look of horror on her face sank back into her pillow exhausted. And in a few moments, she left this world. Typically, as you know, I, I start my messages with, with something light, even humorous, but not this morning. For this morning, we are going to pick, peek into the future to see God's last judgment. A judgment that is searing, it is dreadful, and it is tragic. Up to this point in John's vision, Jesus had defeated his enemies and Satan was bound in the abyss for 1,000 years while Jesus physically and personally reigned upon the earth with His resurrected saints and with those who survived the tribulation period and were ushered into the kingdom in their mortal bodies. This was all seen by John. And after the thousand years was completed, Satan was released for a short time, a short time to take one last shot at deceiving the nations. And afterwards, he was cast into the lake of fire to join the Antichrist and the false prophet. If you recall from last week, we talked about two resurrections. Those that are resurrected before the 1,000 year millennial kingdom. And then there are those who are resurrected after the 1,000 years is completed. Well, in John's vision, the 1,000 years is completed. And now it's time for the last resurrection. A resurrection with a purpose. That being to bring the spiritually dead before the highest court for their day of reckoning before a holy and righteous God. We are still in Revelation 20, and we will be looking at the the last five verses pertaining to God's final judgment. But before we dig in, I want to make 
a disclaimer of sort. If you want to call it that. A disclaimer. Beginning with some encouraging words from Jesus in the Gospel of John, chapter 5, verse 24. Jesus said, is it up behind me? Okay. John 5, John 5, 24. Jesus said, Truly, truly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and does not come into judgment, but has passed out of death into life. As you know, for those who have truly placed their faith in Jesus Christ, their sins have already been judged and paid for in full. In full. And in that sense, their judgment was completed at the cross. By His grace, Jesus followed the will of His Father and took upon Himself the penalty for sin. And therefore, to those who have placed their faith in Jesus, they will not be judged for sin. However, with that said, there will be a judgment for believers. According to 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 10, where the Apostle Paul tells us, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive compensation for his deeds done through the body in accordance with what he has done, whether good or bad. So there is a judgment for Christians. But it's not a judgment for sin. Okay? It's not about salvation. Rather, this is a judgment where the character of our actions and our motives are evaluated by the Lord for rewards. This is what Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, beginning with verse 10. Paul says, According to the grace of God which was given to me, like a wise master builder, I laid a foundation, and another is building on it. But each man must be careful 
how he builds on it. For no man can lay a foundation other than the one which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now, if any man builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each man's work will become evident. For the day will show it because it is to be revealed with fire. And the fire itself will test the quality of each man's work. If any man's work, which he has built on it, remains, he will receive a reward. If any man's work is burned up, he will suffer loss. But he himself will be saved yet so as through fire. Okay. In context, Paul is talking about building the local church. But there is also an application here for all true believers. There will come a time when Jesus evaluates the quality of our actions and our motives. And those actions and motives that don't measure up, those he considers worthless, like wood and hay and straw, they will be burned up in his scrutiny as though they never existed. And for those actions and motives that Jesus considers worthy and valuable, like gold and silver and precious stones, they will be rewarded. As I related to you last week, what we do And why we do what we do matters. And it has a bearing in our life here and in the life in our next life. It has a bearing. So I said all of that to say this. Okay? Told you it was a disclaimer. I said all of that to say this. What we are about to dig into this morning has nothing to do with true believers and rewards. Okay? I just wanted to make that clear. Can we keep that in mind? Just just make sure. I want to keep this in mind. So if you have your Bible, turn to Revelation 20. And we will begin where we left off with verse 11. Revelation 20, verse 11. In this verse, the Apostle John tells us, Then I saw a great white throne. 
and Him who sat on it. From whose presence earth and heaven fled away. And no place was found for them. John begins with the words, Then I saw. Which tells us this is a transition into a a new topic, into a new subject. A subject where the matter of sin comes before the judge to be dealt with once and for all. Sin has been a problem since the day of Adam. It's been an open case. But now God is going to close it forever. In his vision, John sees a great white throne. It's in the heavenly realm. And God sits on it. More specifically, it is the Lord Jesus Christ who sits on it. For he told us in John chapter 5, verse 22, for not even the Father judges anyone. But he has given all judgment to the Son. Jesus explained that the Father gave him the authority to execute judgment. Because he is the Son of Man. He is the Son of Man. Only Jesus can decide the fate of humanity because he experienced life as a human and yet... And yet he was sinless. In Acts, the Apostle Peter related that the Father had appointed Jesus as the judge of the living and the dead. And later to the Romans, Paul said that God will judge the secrets of men through Christ Jesus. Jesus is the judge, for there is no one more qualified. And when his court is called to order, we are told the heaven and earth, excuse me, the earth and heaven, referring to the sky, fled away in his presence. Just as God created the universe out of nothing, it will be uncreated and turned back into nothingness. It's all gone. It no longer exists. And we will learn why in our next chapter. So court. Court is in session. And there's literally no place to hide. No place to hide. And just so you know, 
There's also no jury to sway. There's no public defenders. There will be no cross-examinations. No technicalities. No arguments. No time to change one's mind. No excuses. And no appeals. It's a lot of no's, isn't it? There will be no place to stand except to stand before the throne of a holy and righteous God. Then John continues with his vision. And he tells us, beginning in verse 12, And I saw the dead, the great and the small, standing before the throne. And books were opened. And another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged from the things which were written in the books according to their deeds. And the sea gave up the dead which were in it. And death and Hades gave up the dead which were in them. And they were judged, every one of them, according to their deeds. In the process of seeing the universe dissolved into nothingness, John also sees the dead standing before the throne. Standing before God. These are the people who take part in the final resurrection. That resurrection that comes after the thousand year millennial kingdom is completed. These are the spiritually dead. The unbelievers. The lost people from all ages who were resurrected from the sea and the grave, both great and small, and everyone in between. These are the ones who claimed they were essentially good people and believed that God is good for some. He's good for some. Just not them. They didn't. They didn't need Him. These are the ones who were convinced that their good deeds would outweigh their bad deeds. Assuming that God grades on a scale, on a curve, and they would be okay. These are the ones who played church. They said they were Christians, but in name only. In name only. For their hearts never changed. These are the ones who allowed pride to keep them from receiving Christ because they were too worried 
about what others may think or what others may say. These are the ones who knew they were lost, who knew they needed Jesus and kept saying, maybe tomorrow. Until it was too late and there were no more tomorrows. These are the ones who claimed to be children of God. And yet, they continued to live their lives as if there was no God. They lived their lives as if God really never mattered. These are the ones who rejected Jesus. They rejected their salvation. They rejected God's love. They rejected God's forgiveness. They rejected God's grace and mercy. And here, they are all summoned to court in resurrected bodies to stand in the presence of God. Ironically, throughout life, they sought independence from God. They kept their distance from Him. And now, they find themselves in His presence. Face to face. And sadly, it's for their judgment. Notice that John tells us he sees books in his vision. Two sets of books. Books of deeds... That's what we call them, books of deeds. That record every action, every word, every thought, and every motive. And then, there is the book of life. A book that records faith. For it contains the names of those who were saved by faith, and trusted in God alone for their salvation. If you think about it, the appearance of the book of life during this judgment is proof that access to God is by faith alone. For if salvation could be gained by works, then the books recording the deeds would be enough. But they are not enough. And for those whose names are not written in the book of life, they will be judged according to the contents of those books of deeds. This is a good place to remind you of an important truth. 
a truth for those who think they're not bad people. They have nothing to worry about. For those who do not know Jesus Christ as their Savior and Lord, in order to be found not guilty by God and to qualify for heaven, every single entry in the books of deeds needs to be filled with nothing but good stuff. Every single entry. God's standard is absolute perfection. And if God finds one single sin, just one, one single sin recorded in the book, it's a guilty verdict. Guilty. Listen to what we are told in James chapter 2, verse 10. For whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles in one point, one, he has become guilty of what? All. In context, Paul was talking about the royal law. You've heard that term before, the royal law. A a law that rules over all the rest. That being to love God and to love your neighbor as yourself. That is the royal law. It's a law that commands us to do what love requires us to do. Simple as that. Do what love requires you to do. That is the royal law. God the Father gave this law. And Jesus showed us what it looked like. And we are commanded To live it out. To love God and to love others. And to break this law is like breaking all laws. Like a pane of glass. Think of a pane of glass. If you break it at one point, you break the whole pane. Likewise, if you break just one of his commands, no matter how small or trivial you might think it is, ultimately, it is disobedience against God. It makes a person a sinner, and the verdict will be the same. Guilty. By God's grace, Jesus took our guilt and the penalty for sin that comes with it upon himself on the cross. 
But for those who do not trust Him, for those who reject Him, they get to bear their own guilt and the penalty for their sin. And beginning with verse 14, that penalty is described for us. John says, Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. This is pretty self-explanatory, isn't it? This is the consequence for all who are found guilty of sin. There are no short sentences, no probation, no diversion. It's to the lake of fire for eternity. Now you may say, wait a minute, pastor. Wait a minute. How can any sin deserve judgment in the lake of fire for eternity? If God is good, How can he punish like this? Consider this scenario. Suppose a middle school student, okay? A middle school student punched another student in class, okay? What happens? In my days, that student was given detention after school. Suppose during detention, this boy punches the teacher. Punches the teacher. What happens? The student gets suspended from school. Suppose on the way home, the same boy punches a police officer in the nose. What happens? He finds himself confined in juvenile detention. Suppose some years later, This very same boy is in a crowd waiting to see the President of the United States. And as the President passes by, the boy lunges forward to punch the President. 
happens. He could be shot by the Secret Service. In every case, the crime is precisely the same. But the severity of the crime is measured by whom the crime is committed against. I think we forget that all sin is ultimately against God Himself. And what comes from sinning against God? It's the lake of fire. Now, at least for me, this brings up an interesting question. As we've already covered, we know that for believers, there are various rewards given to us. We know that there are various roles and responsibilities we might be assigned depending on our faithful service in this life. As I said before, what we do in this life has a bearing in the next. Using that same idea, could there be various degrees of torment in the lake of fire according to one's sin. In other words, for example, would a person who is playing church and is lost be punished the same as Adolf Hitler? Good question. Look at Matthew chapter 11, verse 20 through 24. This is Jesus talking. Then he began to denounce the cities in which most of his miracles were done, because they did not repent. Woe to you, Chorazin! Woe to you, Bethsaida! For if the miracles had occurred in Tyre and Sidon, which occurred in you, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. Nevertheless, I say to you, it will be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon in the day of judgment than for you. And you, Capernaum, will not be exalted to heaven, will you? You will descend to Hades. For if the miracles had occurred in Sodom, which had occurred in you, it would have remained to this day. Nevertheless, I say to you that it will be more tolerable for the land of Sodom in the day of judgment than for you. So based on what we just read, those words more tolerable 
mentioned a few times, it would appear to indicate there will be various degrees of punishment and torment. Everyone will get exactly what they deserve. God will be fair. But of course, it's still in the lake of fire, so it really doesn't give you much comfort. God offers a simple choice. Fairness or forgiveness. Take fairness and you get exactly what you deserve. Accept forgiveness and Christ pays the price for your sin and your name is written in the book of of life. In 1829, a man named George Wilson was arrested for robbery and murder in a U.S. mail heist. He was tried, convicted, and sentenced to death by hanging. Some friends intervened on his behalf and were able to obtain his pardon from President Andrew Jackson. But when told of this, Wilson refused it, saying he wanted to die. Well, the sheriff didn't know what to do. How do you execute a man who has been officially pardoned. An appeal was made to the president, who, perplexed, turned the matter over to the Supreme Court. And Chief Justice John Marshall gave this ruling. A pardon is a piece of paper. The value of it depends on its acceptance by the person implicated. Anyone under the sentence of death would hardly be expected to refuse a pardon. But if it's refused, it's no pardon. Thus, George Wilson was executed while his signed pardon laid on the sheriff's desk. In the same way, in the same way, God has offered his free gift of salvation to every person through his son, Jesus Christ. A gift that not only provides a pardon from condemnation, but it offers eternal life. However, this gift must be personally accepted by faith to be personally experienced in this life and in the next life.
Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word. Tough words. But they are true words. I don't know how clearer you can make it. There is a terrible, dreadful, horrible judgment awaiting those who reject you, who reject your forgiveness, who reject your salvation through your Son. Hard to imagine, Lord. But that is the case. Father, help us as as your people. To understand this for what it is. Light a fire in us, Lord. I don't want to see anybody have to go through this. Give us a passion, Father, for the lost. Give us a burden for them. Help us, Lord God, to share what we know about you. Father, for those who do not know you, I pray, Father, even now that you would just just clear away the clutter and just speak to their hearts. Give them the courage, Father, to stand up. Father, may you be honored and glorified. For you are worthy. In Jesus' name. Amen. I'm going to read those words again. I read to you earlier. I will pour out my wrath on you very soon. I will exhaust my anger against you and judge you according to your ways. I will punish you for all your detestable practices. I will not look on you with pity or spare you. I will punish you for your ways and for your detestable practices within you. Then you will know that it is I, Yahweh, who strikes. Those are some tough words. I don't want to hear those words. Why would anybody want to hear those words from the Lord? They're terrible words. But unfortunately, there will be those who do.
I wonder sometimes we get a picture of, of Jesus, you know, that baby in a manger, that, that meek and mild carpenter, the lamb, the lamb, right? But there will come a time when he's a lion and he's the judge. That day will come when he's the judge. These are some serious, somber, sobering words. These are not words you play with, do you? We don't, we don't play with this. These are as serious as they get. If you do not know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, and this was your last day on earth, those would be the words you would hear. Hmm. I don't want to hear those words. If you're here this morning, and you do not know Jesus as your Savior, as your Lord, I would love to talk with you. To introduce you to Him. He loves you so much. He doesn't want to share those words with you either. He loves you so much. I love you. I'd love to tell you about him. Maybe you're looking for a church home. We'd love to have you here as well. Maybe there's something else going on in your life. I'd love to pray with you. How the Lord moves you this morning. I'm getting depressed even talking this morning. <laughs> this is such a somber, somber, difficult passage to go through. But how the Lord moves you, I just pray that you just respond to Him. Just respond to Him. This morning is the first of the first of the month, and I enjoy this time just to just to remember all that the Lord has done for us, especially in light of what we just what we just talked about this morning. Jesus went to the cross. Jesus went to the cross so that we. We would not have to. Jesus suffered and died so that we would have eternal life. Sometimes I think we forget this. Sometimes I think we take it for granted. We take Him for granted. I know I do. And this is just a reminder of what He has done for us. As the servers are, are handing out the, 
the bread and the, and the juice. Just ponder what He's done for you personally. If there's something in your life that's just not, uh, not setting well, confess it. Take that to the Lord. During one of the last few times with His, with his disciples, we're talking just hours, hours away from an old wonder cross. And Jesus knew this is what was happening. He knew this was coming. In fact, He said, this must happen. This is the way it has to be. He knew this was waiting him. But he loved, he loved his people. And he had this one one moment with them. They were sharing supper. Passover supper, actually. And Jesus told them. And they didn't fully understand. But Jesus told them, My body will be given for you. It will be broken for you. Remember what I do. Remember me. And when you eat the bread, remember the sacrifice that I made for you. That's what this represents. A sacrifice that He made for you. I hope you get that. For you. Personally. Sacrifice He made for you personally. He said, "When when you take this, remember what I did. He told His disciples to eat. May we do likewise. Jesus knew something else, too. He knew he would go to a cross, suffer in agony and torment. He would incur the full wrath of God. God's full wrath. He had to. But he knew that wasn't it. He also knew that in three days... He would come to life. And His blood, this this juice represents His blood that gives us life. It represents the new covenant whereby we may be made right with God because of His finished work. Because of what He did. And he told his disciples to drink. May we do likewise. I need, I need to pray. I want to pray this morning for our offering and also for our, our fellowship time. Thank you, Larry, for that, uh, that preview. Um, so let, let me pray for us. Father, thank you, Lord, for, for, for who you are and what you've done. Uh, Heavenly Father, I, I, uh, I pray for our, our offering time. And Lord God, I pray that you help us to be cheerful givers. And Lord, to help us as a church to use your, your money uh, and your money wisely. Father, bless the gift and bless the giver. 
and for our fellowship, Father, as well. Bless the, the food that is, uh, that is presented to us. Bless it to our bodies. Thank you, Lord God, for providing. Uh, bless those, Father, who, who have brought food and prepared food. I thank you, Father, for them. Lord God, may you be honored and glorified in all that is said and done. In Jesus' name, amen.